Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Covenant Church. I'm glad you're here, whether you're here in person or you're watching from work in a hotel or you are vacationing with family and online. We're so glad that everyone who's tuning in this morning has decided to be here at Grace. I will tell you that, Ben, I was just moved by what was really just a mini theological treatise this morning. I was reminded uh, at the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 where he's talking about not coming forward in an unworthy manner. And you're exactly right. We, we don't want to come forward in an unworthy manner, but all of us are absolutely unworthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's only through his blood that we receive the forgiveness of sins. So thank you for so poignantly spelling that out for us today. Uh, My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And if you're new this morning, please know that my family knows what that is like. We have, in a month from now, been here one year at Grace Covenant Church. I will tell you, we've since eaten dinner in around two dozen of your homes. If my math is correct, we've got about 2,134 left to go. So thank you so much for your patience. Um, We appreciate that toward Shan and I and our four children. We absolutely love it here. We're all uh, continuing to grow in our love for this place, and it's truly a remarkable church family. I'm not sure why only two-thirds of you showed up this morning, but normally you're quite remarkable. What if I only wrote two-thirds of a sermon? Would you be pleased? (laughs) We're going to uh, do something awesome Today, we're going to begin studying a book of Bible, verse by verse, out of the New Testament. And it's a book uh, that was written by the Apostle Paul. Um, I will tell you it's called Philippians. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you have a fake Bible on your phone, you can turn there too. I think it was Ric Flair who said that uh, an imitation is the greatest form of flattery, right? This is going to be great. Uh, This book is largely, um, I would say, about the joy of the Lord. There are certainly other sub-themes. So everybody with me, if you will, say joy. Joy. Good. If you haven't noticed, joy is not guaranteed. How many of you would say, I've noticed? Right? That's because we're deficient. Uh, We are short of it ourselves, oftentimes. In fact, some may say, and I would agree with them, that generally speaking, we live in a cheerless, curmudgeonly, frustrated, crusty, grouchy, disagreeable, cantankerous, grumpy world. If there's not an amen there, I don't know if you're here today. This is just the reality of the world we live in. 
we might as well ask, how do we have joy as the people of God in a joyless society? And this isn't altogether new. Even in the Declaration of Independence, man, what a story that Christian shared with us today of his entry into America and losing his mother and becoming a citizen. How many of you are grateful to be a citizen of the United States of America? What an amazing place. So I'll tell you that even the founders in the Declaration of Independence said that our joy is not guaranteed. They said words like these, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator God with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, life, Guaranteed. Liberty, guaranteed. Happiness, eh, good luck. (laughs) Hope you do well with that. Try hard. Most aren't going to find it, but you may because it is, is it not, an elusive little critter. Chasing joy is like chasing the wind. Studies show that screen time only makes happiness less attainable. I heard on the radio this week, and this is spoken by a dad of two boys who love Zelda. If kids are on it more than one hour per day, their joy begins to plummet. Okay? That's for those of our kids who have yet to learn about politics. Anybody here understand well that politics can rob you of joy? Yes, they can. We are so divided in our country. We must cast our vote into only one of two big buckets, it would appear, to vote for a winning candidate, even if they're both horrible. And one side tells you the other side is going to ruin America. And the other side tells you the first side is going to ruin America. And if you don't throw your vote in their bucket, this, this, and this will inevitably happen. And as a result of this, Consuming this day in and day out, people are, aren't they, hypersensitive. You may already be offended this morning without even as much of a mention as a political party. And that's exactly my point. There is no good news on the news. Social media has made it worse. I read this over the weekend on Twitter. The caption of this meme was, how social media works. I say, I prefer mangoes to oranges. 
Then a random person says, so basically what you're saying is, is that you hate oranges. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm simply saying I prefer mangoes to oranges. That's, that's not, sir, what I said. Well, you also failed to mention pineapples. Bananas, grapefruits, educate yourself. I'm literally shaking. This is the kind of squabbles we get into. Can you believe we're only five months away from Christmas? Dare I break that to you? Christmas is supposed to be joy to the world. Yet 88% of us will be highly stressed to the max. Anxious. Fighting over where we're going to go. And how much we're going to spend. And what we're going to eat. And what we are or aren't going to talk about when the family comes over. That's before the actual conversations. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. We're like, wait a minute, what time of year is it? It's not Christmas yet. The emotional disposition of the church ought to not have in July, hello, high tides and low tides. We're to be triumphant and joyful as the people of God consistently throughout. Amen? Not just at Christmas. We sing so jubilantly. Let earth receive her king. Do we not as the people of the earth receive our king on a regular basis? It's not just at Christmas time. Growing up, my grandpa Burris would read about the birth of Christ from Luke chapter 2. Every Christmas before a gift was opened. We'd read from, he would read from Luke chapter 2 out of his recliner. He wouldn't get off his recliner. He'd just reach down to the side and grab his Bible and turn to Luke 2. And if you'll recall, the angels appeared to some shepherds attending their flocks, and the angels said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great Joy, and it shall be for all people today in the town of David. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Here is what Luke chapter 2 means in our introduction to Philippians. There's not joy in the world, church. Joy comes through the person of Jesus Christ. Joy came into the world when God sent his son down. It's God the Father who sends joy into the world. And the joy's name is Jesus. The good news isn't found on the news. Heavens know. 
The good news is found in Christ. And if we pursue the world and joy in it, it will not be, as our founders rightly pointed out, guaranteed. But if we pursue Jesus, joy is guaranteed no matter what is happening in the world. And the book of Philippians is just like this handbook for joy. I prayed with a staff somewhere down in this area this morning, and I realized sitting over here that I left my Bible. So if somebody finds a black slimline Bible, I will buy you lunch. Brandon, is that you? Or are you pointing to my Bible? Give it up for Brandon for bringing me my Bible. You are so kind. Thank you. It's hard to preach a sermon without a Bible. A good one. I'll tell you that the book of Philippians is, is like this handbook of joy. Nineteen times in this book, the Apostle Paul, in only four chapters, mentions the word joy or rejoicing. Now, before we read, let me tell you just a little bit about this book. Sometimes the background can be my favorite part. And if you're new to Grace Covenant, what we've done since I arrived is called topical preaching, where we start with a topic and we go to the scriptures for support of the topic that we feel is most timely for the church in a given period to hear. And what we're going to be doing today is called expository preaching, which is the style of preaching that has been my bread and butter for about 16 years. I'm about a year removed, so I may be a little rusty, but simply, you just pick a book of the Bible, and you read a few verses, and you talk about them. And then you read a few more verses, and you talk about those verses until you get through a book, and then you pick another book and start with it. So this morning, we're going to look at the book of Philippians, and as prelude, I'll tell you, the Apostle Paul, who some of you are familiar with, planted the Philippian church in Acts chapter 16. So if you'd like to do a little bit of homework between now and next week, you can read chapter 16 of the book of Acts to see how we got this letter called Philippians. Here's what's cool about the Philippian church. It was the very first church that was planted in Europe. How many of you would say that's pretty cool? Because if you look at the mark of Christendom, in Europe, in the first 500 years since the resurrection of Jesus, it was quite profound, specifically since the moment that Constantine declared to name Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. And some of the previously built infrastructure of the Roman Empire, such as the roads, such as the translation of languages, enabled the gospel to really grow quite quickly. But first, the Apostle Paul rolls into Europe, and there's nothing. Sure, there are synagogues. There are the worshipers of Abraham, uh, the God of Abraham, rather, Isaac and Jacob, Orthodox Jews, but there's no Messianic Jews in Europe at this point. Paul comes in, and here's what he finds. He finds that there aren't even 10 guys in the city of Philippi 
who are belonging to a synagogue. In a city of Philippi, he finds that there aren't even 10 Orthodox Jews, the minimum that it took to start a gathering, a Jewish synagogue, worshiping there. There were fewer than 10 believing Orthodox Jewish men in the city in all likelihood. Can you imagine North Charlotte with fewer than 10 believing men? Paul comes in. Much like today, it was the women of the city of Philippi who took their relationship with God seriously. Ouch, right? Um, In the Bible Belt, I think it's more half and half than in other places I have experienced. But I'll tell you, generally, it's the women who drag the men to church and not the men who drag the women to church. If women drag their kids to church, their kids have about a 15% chance of accepting Jesus before leaving the home. If men drag the family to the church, kids have an 80 plus percent chance of saying yes to Jesus before their kids leave home. Men, it is so important that we lead well. That we be the church of Philippi after it was planted some 10 years later that we'll read about in this letter and not the church of Philippi that existed when Paul rolled in. Because it matters. It matters that our kids have mealtime prayer and bedtime prayer. And I am far from perfect in any of this, let me tell you. In fact, one time, Shannon told me, Zach, if you waited to preach on what you were good on, you'd never have anything to say at all. (laughs) True story. I think she meant it in a complimentary way, but that wasn't the way that it was received. The Apostle Paul comes in and begins meeting with these ladies. And I'll tell you that the Church of Philippi was founded by the Apostle Paul and a group of women. They go from being Orthodox Jews to Messianic Jews. Paul tells them of the newly resurrected Lord. They become Christians. Among them is a woman named Lydia. She is a fashionista. She loves the color purple. In particular, it was quite big at that time. So Lydia is crushing it. Her margins are high. Her threads are popular. I've even read she had multiple houses in multiple cities. She's right up there with the Prada of her day, with the Versace of her day. And Lydia was so affluent, so well-established that she begins personally funding the Apostle Paul his ministry. She becomes the underwriter for the gospel to hit Europe and explode. She's the, again, the philanthropist. She, and guess what happens? Women begin getting saved. 
Women surrender their hearts to Christ. The church starts flourishing. The legacy of Christianity is born in Europe. And by the time Paul later writes his letter to the church, he's long gone. The church is now about 10 years old. It's one of the the best churches in the New Testament, likely the best church in the New Testament. It's now full of men and women, a mixed gender crowd 10 years later. Paul doesn't even rebuke them in his letter. He rebukes the Corinthians. They have gone wild. He rebukes the Galatians. They've become stuffy and religious and self-righteous. They've become proud. The church at Philippi, they're just rolling along in Christ-likeness and germane to our series. They are chock full of something called joy. Paul doesn't even have to ascribe to himself authority like he does in some of his other letters. He begins oftentimes with the rebellious churches. Paul, an an apostle of Jesus Christ, but here his tone you'll see is tender And scholars tell us it's because their hearts are already tender. He includes Timothy. He refers to himself and Timothy as servants. How many of you have multiple children who have different personalities? How many of you would say that when you have a child who is sweet and compliant, like my Caroline, who's five, if I just look at her wrong, she will tear up. You don't have to play the parental org chart card, right? I don't have to tell Caroline who her daddy is. Who's in charge here? But there are others (laughs) who I have to say that to from time to time. Paul doesn't do that here. If someone already honors you, you don't need to pull out your credentials, These parishioners' hearts had already been warmed. They were already growing in Christ. So check this out. So developed were they in Christ's likeness that in 104 verses, in four chapters, Paul does not even mention the word sin directly. And wouldn't that be cool if Pastor Farrell... 20, 30, 40 years from now, on his, in his dying words, wrote a letter to us and talked about the faithfulness of this church. Man, I just, as I recollect, I, I don't remember you all sinning. How many of you know that probably likely wouldn't be the case? <laughs> but think about the significance of this. So Paul speaks of joy some 19 times in these four chapters again. And at this time, I'd like to ask you to stand in honor of God's word. And we're going to read the first 11 verses. Are you ready? Let's read together. 
Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. You may be seated. Could I encourage you to do something before I jump in here? Could I request of you that you start every day during the next eight weeks? This is going to take us to the conclusion of our summer, even through the start of school. Would you be willing to get up early in the morning and read for 15 minutes a day all four chapters in the book of Philippians? I hope this book so saturates your heart, I hope you memorize it at the end of eight weeks. How much joy would you grow in if you read the book of Philippians for 15 minutes each morning over the next eight weeks. How many of you know your joy will not flower over the next eight weeks by getting morning updates on the early campaign trail? <laughs> Would you consider reading Philippians? You'll enjoy this book. Even when life isn't amazing, this book teaches us that God is amazing. Joy and Jesus go in tandem with each other. They're like peanut butter and jelly. Nobody, do you know this, is going to be bummed in glory. When we get to heaven, when we get to our eternal home, there is going to be utter bliss. We're going to have sheer joy. Glory to God. You are not going to need anti-anxiety meds when you cross the river. That's how good God is. That's how temporal this earth is. So we begin with that note, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, 
One of my favorite quotes from grad school was this. Jesus didn't come with a sword and a scepter. Jesus came with a basin and a towel. Paul begins this book by saying, I'm what? I'm a servant. I'm here to serve. Man, what a model have you all had in Pastor Farrell for 27 years. A few weeks ago, I was in a staff meeting. And I asked the question because after a number of walks around the parking lot, I'd notice a bunch of wrappers that were left. And I asked Troy, our operations guy, I said, Troy, I've been picking up trash, but who's responsible for the trash at Grace? Troy said, actually, he retired. Because <laughs> Pastor Farrell was immaculate, and he was a servant, and he walked a lot more than I do. But it was a clean place, because he shared Paul's heart. He loved the Lord, and he led through service. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Church family, we are not on this earth to be served. Amen? We're here to serve others. If you are a guest this morning, I will let you pass on my next few points. You can just not oblige, okay? But for the rest of you, man, do not treat church like a commodity. Amen? Where well, we're just here to consume something and then leave and just continue to gorge ourselves without exercising our spiritual muscles. Don't look for the best bar in town or the best bartender. If you're searching, rather find a church that feels like home, be known there and know others there, and then plug in there. Give of yourselves. I've said this for years. Every parent who has, and I'll put it in your context in, here at Grace, every, every parent who has a child in Grace Kids ought to at some point serve in Grace Kids. Why? Because we don't treat church as if we're to be entertained and everybody else is merely at our disposal. Treat it as a living organism that you're willing to care for and steward. If you don't have children, or if you find children intolerable, <laughs> join our security team. That's a great pitch, isn't it? Like, if you don't like kids, boy, do we have a place for you. Wear an orange shirt. I'm telling you, if it weren't for our security team and our medics, this Sunday service would not happen. It just wouldn't. We wouldn't be able to pull it off. I don't know if we'd ever actually do this, but I said a few weeks ago in staff meeting, because we did something similar to this in Wisconsin, I don't think it would scale, but wouldn't it be fun to do a Sunday when nobody volunteered? 
What's the first thing that would happen when visitors pulled up in the parking lot? They would have no idea where to go because nobody would have put cones out. Nobody would have put signage out. Nobody would have turned the fountain on. Nobody would have shot the geese around the pond with flares to have them disperse. We would have buzzards on our crosses. How dark a symbol is buzzards on our crosses? Somebody literally gets rid of the buzzards on our crosses so that you don't ever see them. We see them. You don't see them. Then you come in and nobody's there with a smile on their face. Nobody's saying hi. Nobody's pointing anybody to guest central. You go in the gathering place so eager to have a hot cup of joe because you still have some sleepy in your eyes and there's nothing. There's no extracurriculars happening. There's no premarital classes. There's no senior saints Sunday school class. There's no food after church. There's only those who are on staff on stage, which is basically Justin and Jordan. How lame would that band be? I mean, I love those guys. They're awesome, but they need some support, do they not? Nobody's cleaned the restrooms. Nobody's put out food for the volunteers because there are no volunteers. You'd forgotten about that. You went back looking for some biscuits and gravy, not recognizing that you weren't here to serve this morning. So there's nothing. I'm probably forgetting a dozen areas of church life that would absolutely crumble if we didn't have faithful men and women who, like the Apostle Paul, stepped up to serve so that people could come to know Jesus. I'm telling you, every time somebody gets in that tank, part of their baptism, being buried and raised again in life in Jesus Christ, is owed to the people in the orange and blue shirts and with lanyards on who do the work of Jesus Christ for gratis. Philippians 1, second half of verse 1. One thing you'll learn about expository teaching, it goes quite slowly. It took me three years one time to get through the book of Acts. Our church grew the fastest during that season than any other season. It was remarkable. People just developed a hunger for the word. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you extend grace to others or judgment? Some of you were so repentant. It was awesome. I, I giggled about it, and you giggled too and when you came up to me after wearing a T-shirt on the stage a few weeks ago and said, Pastor, I owe you an apology. I was that guy. I was that gal. I had judgment in my heart. 
Do you extend peace or do you extend anxiety? I was at a conference not too long ago. I learned something that should have been obvious to me for many years. As someone who struggles himself with mild to at times moderate anxiety, I have had two panic attacks in my lifetime. One sent me to the emergency room. The other had me parked on the side of the road for about 30 to 45 minutes. I will tell you that anxiety is communicable. It's contagious. All of us have varying degrees of anxiety. Anxiety is transferable. Steve Cuss, who's an authority on the subject, our staff is about to read his book, says, it can be caught. If you're around anxious people, you're more likely to become anxious. How many of you would say, wow, that explains a lot? It does. So what do you have to do? You have to internally refuse to catch others' anxiety. You have to put up a figurative wall and not let someone else's emergency and stress become your emergency and stress. Or before you know it, you're carrying the world. I will tell you, I have verbally refused to catch Shannon's anxiety a time or two, and it did not go well for me. So make sure you're doing that internally, okay? <laughs> Honey, I just can't catch your anxiety for now. How do you think that went? <laughs> Not well. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> Verse 3. I thank God every time I remember you. You know what comes back to me with this? Have you ever heard of the Acts prayer the acronym, it's kind of timeless. It's been around a long, long time. ACTS is an acronym for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. The thought is, every time we go before the Lord, we ought to have some part of each of those activities in our prayer language. I will tell you, we evangelicals are really poor at the first three. Meaning, we don't say, God, I just want to acknowledge that you're sovereign today. Lord, you're big. You're transcendent. You're powerful. You're huge. I adore you. We also don't say, Lord, often, as we should, I confess my darkness to you today. I have unrepentant sin in my heart, in my mind, in my thoughts, in my deeds. I need to bring those to you today so that you might wash me clean. We're also not great at what Paul is asking us to do or modeling for us in being thankful when we pray. Lord, thank you that we have a roof over our heads. Lord, thank you. 
for the family members that we are in great relationship with. Lord, thank you for our church. I know it's imperfect, but it's a great church family. Lord, thank you for the friendships that I have that are honoring to you. Instead, we skip to supplication. What is supplication? Supplication is asking things of God. The first three ascribe glory to God. The last one asks God to take care of us. We ought to be spending 75% over here of our time and 25% over here, but a lot of times we put all of our What's the word I'm looking for? Balls, let's say, in the same basket. Asking the Lord to do stuff for us. What a deeper Christianity this invokes. Now here's what happens in expository sermons. You get to the end of your time and you just close the word and the next week, You open it up where you left off, and you keep on going. What does that mean for you? That means if you're an avid note taker who loves tweetable things to write down, you get very little. In fact, you don't even get a conclusion. You just thank God for what he gave us today in his word. So Heavenly Father, I'm just going to thank you right now, Lord, and ask that we might just make this Acts prayer our prayer today. Lord, you're worthy of it all. Lord, as Ben shared this morning, Lord, it's not because of anything that we have done, but it's because of you, crucified and resurrected King, dying for our sins that we have eternal life. Lord, you're amazing. You're the only one that's ever done it. Lord, everything depends on the veracity, the the, um, truthfulness of the resurrection. Lord, you actually died. You actually rose again. We believe it. We believe that what we believe is really real. Lord, for that reason, we adore you. You're our treasure. You're our joy. Lord, we confess to you today Lord, I pray that you would sweep out and clean every dark crevice in our heart. Lord, if there are men here who aren't dragging their families to church, Lord, and who are still living in secret, not being vulnerable with a group of brothers around them, speaking openly, about their trials and temptations. Lord, would you prompt them today to lead well? To be vulnerable, to to not withhold a little bit, even of darkness, but to be fully transparent and open and honest. And Lord, we thank you today, Father. Lord, we thank you for the air that we breathe for the rights and privileges of being American citizens. 
Lord, we thank you for your common grace. Lord, we thank you specifically, again, for salvation, for filling us with your Holy Spirit. For, for helping us to discern what is right and good from what is evil. And Lord, last this morning, we bring supplication to you. Lord, we ask that you would solve our problems, that you would heal our diseases. Lord, that you would fix the things that are broken inside of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? If our prayer teams would come forward, if you have a need, they are making themselves available now. They would love to pray with and for you. We've already taken communion this morning, so uh, we'll have the elements available every other week of the month. And with that said, God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday.